Hello and welcome to Under the Surface, a podcast that takes a closer look at advances in marine science and innovation. I'm your host, Neil James, and in Series 1, The Pollution Experience, we talk to experts dealing with issues and solutions surrounding marine plastics and oil pollution in the north. Welcome to the podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Lola Paradinas, who has conducted research at SAMS in Oban, Scotland, and she's working on the distribution of microplastics around Scotland. I'll be talking to Lola about their work and in particular the use of citizen scientists and how they can contribute to microplastics research. Lola, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Neil, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, no, you're more than welcome. Now, I've had the pleasure of working with you in recent years, but for the benefit of listeners, would you be able to tell us about your most recent role at SAMS and your work? Yes, sure. I mean, I'll I'll try to be short. So I just finished my PhD at SAMS, so the Scottish Association for Marine Science. It was based at Oban on the west coast of Scotland. And uh, the project was funded by the European Social Fund. And the main aim of this project during these uh, last four years was to study microplastics along uh, the Atlantic coastal marine environment. And basically it was to look at microplastic within the beach sediment, the surface seawater and the wide muscle. Okay, fantastic. Now we're going to be talking about your work on microplastics around Scotland. Uh, Would you be able to tell us how the project came to be or what was involved in setting up the project? Uh, yes, sure. So we know that in, in the UK, microplastic study increased every year since 2004, which was like the first um, scientific article that was published talking about microplastics in the marine environment in UK. And it was from uh, the professor Richard Thompson. And since 2004, uh, the microplastic studies increased, especially uh, in the intertidal zone. So this zone was like uh, well, well studied in UK because it's a readily accessible habitats, and also because it's a transition zone between land, which is considered like where the microplastic microplastics are coming from as a source, and also the sea where microplastic could be spread and go to the open ocean or sink to the uh, sea floor. So. We know that there are few studies, like 23 from uh, 2004 to 2021, that happened to study microplastic in coastal zone in the UK. But from this study, uh, there were some gaps, gaps that were highlighted. Uh, for example, there were uh, there was no baseline data set of microplastic in coastal environment in Scotland. Also, the temporal and spatial variation of microplastic in Scotland and worldwide were not well understood yet. And also, usually studies are focusing on one environmental compartment, for example, just the seawater or just the sediment or just biota. And there were not many studies that combine those environmental uh, compartments, for example, studying sediment and seawater. Only, like I think, two studies um combine the the um, environmental compartment when looking at microplastic in the uk so this project uh, aimed to fill the knowledge gaps um, and for that microplastic have been uh, studied in three environmental compartments 
So sediment, surface seawater, and wild muscle at six locations along the Atlantic coast of Scotland. It was approximately covering 400 kilometers of coast and four sampling campaign happened. So it was four times a year. So one sampling campaign, campaign happened every season. And the aim is to look at the occurrence, concentration, composition, and dynamics of microplastics in Scotland. So a lot of people might have heard about microplastics and have some idea about what they are, but could you tell us what you're talking about when you're talking about microplastics? Uh, yes, yeah, sure. So microplastics are small particles of plastics. They are measuring less than five millimeter, which is usually the um, diameter of a pencil, for example. And it's usually coming from the breakdown of bigger, bigger items, such as, for example, nets, um, packaging, film, even paint. Or they could be manufactured already with a small size, such as, for example, beads or uh, nurdle or pellets. And you can find them in cosmetic or uh, in ex exfoliating products. So, for example, uh, microplastics are ranging from the size of a grain sand, pollen, or a diameter of human hair to bacteria or blood cells, for example, human blood cells. So there's actually a huge range of sizes there. Um, exactly. So you spoke about how we don't particularly have an, a great idea, a great understanding of where the microplastics are and how they're distributed and how that changes over time. Is that correct? Yeah, so we we know worldwide, um, like there's thousands of studies that looked at microplastics around the world. So we know it's everywhere. We know um, we can find microplastics in the snow, in the sea ice, I don't know, in drinking water, seafloor. Uh, beach, deep sea, or remote areas such as such as like glacier, trench, mountain top, or isolated island. We also know that they are within or interact with marine fauna. Like I think it's uh, approximately seven hundred species now that you know were recorded with at least interacting with uh, plastics. Um, but we don't know well how they are like moving around how microplastics are being transported and and why and what are the potential factors that are playing a main role in like microplastics transport in the coastal areas for example and especially in Scotland there was like a lack of data because only I think in total we have like maybe 10 studies that look at microplastics in Scotland like since 2004 uh, along the coastal areas and none of them or really few of them look at the dynamics so if there is any for example seasonal variation or if there is i don't know a link with uh, the tides the wind the waves so one of the aim of this uh, thesis was to actually uh, choose some location that would you know have some parameters such as the wave height, the population number, um, the tide, the strength of the tide, uh, the proximity to uh, like urbanized area or anthropogenic activity to actually try to understand if those factors are affecting um, the quantity of microplastics uh, observed in water, sediment or muscle. And so microplastics are certainly interacting with fauna. Do you think there could be concern for humans as well? Are humans ingesting microplastics? 
Well, uh, yes, we know already that microplastics have been found in, for example, I think it's the placenta um, or in the blood. Recently, some like recent study uh, happened to, to find uh, microplastic in blood as well. We know it's in the lungs as well now. So there's like high potentiality that we are breathing them as well. So we know it's also like present in humans, like within humans. Uh, we also know that it's in our foods. So for example, we can find them in fish that we eat or bivalve like shellfish we eat. And we are also now breathing them, we know that. So, but we don't know yet what are the actual effects of microplastics on humans. There are studies going on at the moment to try to understand the, the, the effects. We can just say that they are potential effects, but we don't know with the quantity that we are ingesting and breathing if there is actual effects. So with these potential effects, it's clear that we need to understand where microplastics are and how they're distributed. So in terms of your work, who was involved in the work that you were doing in your project? <clears throat> yes, yeah, sure. So in my project, I had four supervisors. So one was my director of study. Uh, she is working at SAMS as a professor, uh, and she is a deep sea and and microplastic, a deep sea ecologist and microplastic researcher. It's Professor Bhavani Narayana Swami. Then I have a supervisor working also at SAMS uh, and is more a physicist person and modeling person. So it's Dr. Andrew Dale. And then I had another supervisor, Brian Quinn, based at the University of the West of Scotland at Paisley. That was an ecophysiologist. And then I had another supervisor, Dr. Neil James, who is working at the Environmental Research Institute within the UHI, which is my university, so the University of Highland and Ireland. Okay, fantastic. And so your work, what did you see as the primary need that your work was aiming to address? Yes, so um, the primary need was to assess, like fill up the gap about the lack of baseline data about microplastic in Scotland because we didn't know much. So there were like three questions we wanted to answer. That was like, first, if microplastic were present or not in the three environmental uh, compartments, so seawater, sediment, and muscle. So if they were present, um, in what quantities, like how many, how many were found in, in each variable, and also what would be their potential sources. So and that so, was the primary aim. And so how did you go about addressing this? What methods did you use? Okay, so I I addressed this need so to complete the to have like to create a database about microplastic in Scotland. Uh, uh, I designed an ambitious sampling campaign. So like I said before, it was including six locations of over 400 kilometers of coast. Uh, the sampling took place four times a year at all location, and it was included it was including the collection of three environmental compartments so sediment seawater and wide muscle and for that i created a simple efficient and standardized toolkit to add and facilitate the, the collection process by using some glass jar a pole water sampler with bottles and uh, some aluminum foil and zinc bag for uh, the muscles and so 
this toolkit was actually created to help the volunteer that participated to this project to collect all the sample to help them to collect and, and sample the three variable. And then back in the lab, some simple and efficient extraction method were used to recover microplastic from like the three environmental compartment. So for the sediment, uh, a canola oil based extraction was used. Indeed, microplastics actually have oleophilic properties, so they are naturally attracted to oil. So we used an oil to extract microplastics from the sediment. For the water, the sample were simple, like simply filtrated, and then the muscles, uh, the flesh tissue of the muscle were actually um, digesting using some enzyme and then the sample were filtrated. And last, for each particle that were recovered from the marine environment, so the three environmental compartments, uh, infrared spectroscopy technique, which will give the fingerprint, let's say, of the particle, will tell us, was telling us, um, if each particle is a plastic or not, or if it's just a piece of wood or a piece of glass, for example. Oh, fantastic. And so, you were identifying microplastics from sediment, water, and from inside muscles as well. How hard would you say it is to quantify the amount of microplastics and identify them? And how time consuming is it as well? Well, I think I will answer those questions by uh, splitting between each environmental compartment. Uh, for the seawater, it's quite difficult because it's a fluid, so it's not something that's not moving. So we can assume that the microplastics are always moving within the seawater. So it was complicated to actually assess the decide which quantity to collect of water. Uh, for this project, we used um, five. We used five bottles of two hundred and fifty millimeter for each sampling campaign. So in total, we collected uh, 20, 20 liters of seawater per location. Uh, for the sediment, it's the same. We know that over a beach, microplastics are not well, uh, not well um, spread uh, along the beach. There are some uh, patchiness issues. So for that, um, random random point were chosen over the beach to collect microplastic using glass jar and 15 glass jar were were used of five millimeter to collect the sediment and for the muscles 10 individual were collected per location uh, for each sampling campaign so in total 40 muscles were collected so when you're in the lab actually trying to find these microplastics, is there, is there some sort of automated method or are you actually looking through a microscope and just picking these bits of plastic out one by one? So yes, it was one of the main challenges of this thesis. It was the work in the lab. First, because of the potential contamination that can that can happen in the lab, because we individual can contaminate the samples because microplastics are everywhere in our hair or on your clothes. So that was the first challenge. The second challenge was actually that the technique, even if I use simple and efficient technique, it was still time consuming because I did everything manually. Uh, nothing was automated, so I had to run each sample one by one, either for the seawater, sediment or muscle. And then using the infrared spectroscopy, I had to manually transfer each potential microplastic within the machine. So and I analyzed thousands and thousands of 
microplastic potential microplastics. So it's actually very time consuming. There are some techniques with other type of machine that could be automated and could speed up the process, but we didn't have that yet. So would you be able to give an estimate of how much time you spent in the lab? I actually have no idea, but it could, it's months, definitely. <laughs> it's, it's more this time, this time uh, scale. Uh, I would say I spent several months, over four years, maybe, maybe half of my PhD was to work in the lab and extract a macroplastic and try to identify them. So presumably you learned a lot of new skills and you um, definitely increased your ability to identify microplastics. Yes, for sure. Like I, I definitely use different technique of microscopy to to first uh, looked at microplastics, and then also I learned to be patient because you have to transfer many with tweezers the microplastic one by one over a filter paper prior to analyze them. And of course, I learned I learned to use this brand new machine we had at Samta was the infrared uh, spectroscopy, so it's a spectrometer. And I spent hours uh, learning this technique, but it's actually a very powerful tool. We are being able, for example, to know if a particle of few microns, which is the size of a, a human blood cells, if it's this particle is a plastic or not. So it's a very powerful and, and uh, important technique to use in microplastic study. Ah, oh, excellent. So now tell me about the role of citizen scientists in your work. Where did the inspiration come from to involve them? It was due first to practical reason, because to to answer this question of where are the plastics, you know, along the coast of Scotland, it was covering a big spatial scale. And then I wanted to add a temporary scale over a year. And then I needed numerous samples, like a high quantity of samples and of course of different type of samples like i said before so for those practical reasons i knew that citizen scientists were like a resource to enhance uh, those you know like the spatial scale for example or the temporal scales but it could also help to raise awareness about the topic and we know that you know plastic pollution is one of the main stressors of our time you know it's joining like climate change or overfishing for example and also citizen scientists we knew that it was helping to limit the financial cost and limit also which is kind of a an important question but limit also the carbon impact uh, of the sampling campaign of this project so it was kind of an evidence to use citizen scientists as a tool you know and to be able uh, to 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 do that we we contacted volunteers uh, through different ways by emails to call you know uh, for volunteers to participate to the project i knew also that um, citizen scientists ha has been have been implemented you know in many uh, different scientific projects so for example you have the international pellet watch that you know it's a it's a volunteer based global monitoring program that started in 2005 and the aim is to monitor for example the pollution of the ocean I think now they have approximately 200 locations worldwide that has been sampled for this program and they are looking at organic pollutant in resin pellets. So it's like uh, the pellet that, you know, we are using is the base to use to create any plastic objects. They are, they are the, the base we are using for that. I think it's really important to use uh, citizen scientists who are based in and local 
areas as well so they don't have to travel i think that's really good um do you see citizen scientists making a valuable contribution in the future as well in microplastics research Yes, for sure. I'm, I'm convinced that citizen scientists are like a powerful tool to enhance the collection and analysis uh, process of different research uh, projects. Uh, there are several um, programs at the moment that are, you know, um, using, let's say, a citizen scientists. For example, like I said before, you have the International Pellet Watch, but you have also some successful, you know, other program, for example, the Marine Debris Tracker, which is like an open data science application. And you can look, for example, later you can find anywhere in the world. And then you have like a big map where you could use, you know, it's open access, so you can use those data actually in any type of project if you want to you know study uh, microplastics worldwide you could use those data uh, you have also another project that is uh, scottish actually based uh, it's called the great northern hunt uh, so it's an uh, fidra that created this project it's an environmental charity that is working to reduce plastic plastic waste and you know raise awareness so they are building evidence of northern pollution and it's like using the best research practice to do that. And it's of course to influence positive change at national and international level. So people are actually involved in those projects to uh, collect nurtle or microplastics, uh, writing down the type, for example, take a picture and then they could log that into some application to you know, create a massive database worldwide. I also know that citizen science has been you know, included in scientific research since 2013. For example, Indalgo and Ruse and Chiao um, like worked, you know, with citizen scientists to study microplastics along the coast. Um, also, there are other projects that study in microplastic in sediment only or in seawater. And recently, there's a project that also um, using citizen scientists to study microplastic in snow. And it's called the project is called plastic snow it's uh, based in new york at the university of columbia and it's for example um, citizen scientists are involved and are actually collecting microplastic with a kit that has been sent to them and they are collecting the snow in their own backyard and so uh, they are actually starting with the new york state and they will you know uh, then expand to a national national uh, project program so it's it's there already citizen scientists are already you know included in some scientific research and scientific articles are, are, have been published uh, so it's actually already a valuable, they are already making a valuable contribution to research. And of course, it will continue to grow in the future. Oh, it's great to hear that there's so many different ways in which citizen scientists can contribute. And also the fact that you've been using them in your work as well. Um, I should also note that sometimes people would like to use the term community scientists. There is some people like scientists who are using community scientists instead of citizen science. In my project, I wanted to give some uh, precision about that. Um, citizen scientists, it's more seen as the contribution of the public in a, a scientific project. I'm not using, uh, I'm not using citizen as your citizen of a country, but more like any people who wants to be involved in a project could actually participate in a research project. It's like the participation of the general public uh, for for a scientific project. Okay, 
Thank you. And why do you think people are particularly interested in, in making the contribution to plastics research? I can only talk for my project about that, but I had 10 volunteers uh, in total that worked for this project and all of them had already either a scientific background in the study uh, for their study or they already participated in some citizen science project and they are just very curious people they are aware that plastic pollution are kind of a big threat now and over time a big stressor and so they were generally you know outdoorsy people who wanted to be involved in a research program to you know make a difference make a change like make a contribution for something that that's important and what about yourself what drew you to microplastics research what, what was it about the topic that what made you want to spend years of your life studying this well i think it started from um my childhood if i have to if i have to, to start somewhere like i had the chance to uh, travel around the world on a sailing boat for my first 10 years of life and for all those years i got curious about the marine environment and how it was working but i also understood very quickly that you could see you know garbage and the impact of humans you know uh, on, on on the marine environment and this is what drew me since my childhood i was always curious about pollutions and the impact and effect of you know anthropogenic activity on the marine environment and it happened during my study that I heard about plastic pollution. It was maybe something like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I started to hear about plastic pollution and I started to read about it. And I understood it was a big problem. So I did my master thesis um, in Ireland at the at the at Go Away, the GMIT Institute where I studied microplastics in cnidarians, so anemone and jellyfish. And this was, this was my first step studying microplastics. And since I started, I couldn't stop because I understood the more I was studying, studying microplastics, the more I understood that we needed to understand better what are microplastics, what are the sources, where they are coming from, how they are and why they are transported and, you know, which factors could influence them and i understood it was like a global global issue that needed to be to be at least addressed so i couldn't stop i took i took this topic by heart and uh, i will continue to work on plastic i think it sounds like you've always had a passion and a connection to the sea and so it sounds like you will always continue to work in that area um so from your work on microplastics what would you say is the most important outcome of your work First, we understood that microplastics were present at all locations and uh, in the three environmental compartments. Also, we know that the concentration of microplastics were similar to what have been observed in Europe for all three environmental compartments, so seawater, sediment and wild mussels. We know as well that microplastics in mussels were actually smaller in size compared to microplastics observed in sediment or seawater. And sediment and seawater, like the microplastic found in them, had similar size distribution. We know as well that fragments, because microplastics can have several uh, different shapes, you can find them under the fragment shape or fibers, beads, or even a film. 
And we know that in muscle from this project along the coast of Scotland, I want to be clear about that, that fragments were predominant in muscles, while fibers were actually more abundant in sediment and seawater than fragments. Also, there was one main plastic family that was observed, you know, in all three environmental compartments. It was the, 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 the same one for the three environmental compartments, and it was polyester. We know that polyester is a plastic family that uh, is coming from usually packaging, textile or the clothing industry. And we know we can observe polyester under the fibers or fragment shape. Now, if we are focusing on the sources of these plastics observed in Scotland, there are three main sources, the textile and clothing industry, the packaging industry, and also the fishing, sailing and aquaculture. All those sources were uh, the main sources observed in the three environmental compartments. Now, if we have to go a bit more into details, we know that for the sediment, for example, terrestrial sources were predominant. As for seawater, it was more like a mix of maritime and terrestrial sources. And if we are focusing only on the muscle, it was mainly terrestrial sources that you know, were observed based on the plastic recovered from the environmental compartments. And last, if we are focusing on the microplastic dynamic, like I said before, we need to understand the variation of microplastic, the, the fluctuation between the different compartments and temporally. And we, we noticed that microplastics actually have seasonal variation in seawater and mussels. And there are also site-specific variations, so spatial variation of microplastics uh, that were recorded within muscle, sediment and water, which means that, for example, the wind, the population number, the proximity to anthropogenic activity actually played a role uh, in, into the fluctuation of microplastics between sites. And last, it's not very microplastics, but I wanted still to mention that, that another anthropogenic uh, particle have been observed in the tree environmental compartment, which is the cellulose fibers. They were actually twofold greater uh, in all three environmental compartments compared to microplastics. So it should be included in future study and we should learn more about these particles. Oh, that's really interesting. And during your research, what would you say the biggest challenges were, would you say? I would say the first one were working with uh, citizen science, you know, have a part including citizen science. It was quite it was quite difficult to find actually the volunteer because I was I was not aware of any, for example, um, I don't know, national program where you know you had like a, a database of citizen scientists that would be happy to be involved so we have to we had to contact you know uh, through uh, the web of people we knew if people were interested to participate to the project so it was not that easy to find volunteer near the sampling sites also it was kind of difficult to coordinate you have to imagine you know six sites stay volunteer um, to you know coordinate all the steps each time so sending for example the toolkit and the volunteer going on the field and then sending back the samples uh, it, it was it was it was definitely a, a good experience and i learned a lot from it 
The second challenge would be the extraction of microplastic back in the laboratory, because like we said before, it's very time consuming. To extract the samples, it could take several hours, sometime a day. Uh, and also there are a lot of steps prior the um, infrared spectroscopy analysis. So the aim for the future is to maybe reduce those steps to try to be a bit faster and maybe use automatic technique to extract microplastic from, from the environmental compartment. And the last one, which is not the least, is the identification of microplastics. Like I said before, we use the infrared spectroscopy analysis. This analysis, like I said before, is giving a fingerprint of the particle. But I had to transfer manually, one by one, each particles to put it into the machine. It's very time consuming when you know that those particles are very tiny and you have to transfer them with the tweezers. And also there is a risk to lose the particle in the process. And last, there were some technical issues, for example, because some particles, they were in the environment, right? And they could be weathered, you know, they could be um, a, bit, a bit degraded. So it's not that easy to transfer a particle like that and observe a very good answer, you know, telling, okay, this is a plastic, because sometimes it's too degraded to know what it is. So it sounds like there's uh, challenges there in terms of technology and the kind of technical side, but also the need for a network of volunteers, perhaps. Um, so now I understand your work is complete, your PhD is done. What would you see as the next steps? What would you see that needs to be addressed in the future on microplastics research? So now the project is completed. I'm currently working on writing and submitting some scientific articles, you know, to make the finding public and spread and share the finding of this project. This is the first step. And then for the future, I think I could recommend that, you know, future study could look at, for example, the role of benthic organism in the trapping process of microplastic in the sediment. For example, you know, looking at holothurians or annelid worms or other type of bivalve because it's important to understand the fluxes we know they are we know microplastics are everywhere but we still don't know well what are the fluxes you know of microplastic between different compartments so that's why it's important to look at maybe the role of benthic organism in, in the trapping process of microplastics then i would say that it would be interesting to investigate the effect of hydrodynamic activities, so for example, the tide, the wave, the wind, um, on different local uh, temporal scale, for example, choosing a site and looking at the microplastics fluctuation during a day or a week or a month to have like also a short time scale and not only over a year or more. It's also important to, for me, I think, to understand how microplastics are transported within an ecosystem or between the big reservoirs. Like I said, microplastics are in sediment, in the water and in biota. But how are they moving? What are the different factors? And for this, maybe modeling could be an important tool for us to understand and connect those big reservoirs together. And last, it's, I think, important to understand how persistent microplastics are in the environment. We know it's in the environment. We know it would last for thousands of years for some of them. But it could be interesting to try to find a technique to maybe possible given age to microplastic. I think it would help a lot 
uh, the science um, if we can age the microplastics. Uh, microplastics are ultimately from petrochemicals and they're man-made and you were finding them everywhere you looked. Was that emotionally quite tough? Yes, for sure. I mean, when I was based in Scotland and, you know, I had the chance, for example, to collect microplastics on the island of Tyree, which is kind of a remote island on the, on the west coast of Scotland. And when you're seeing, you know, I don't know, nets, fragments of plastics on a beautiful beach, you know, uh, well, you would think that, you know, when it's remote, you, you could not find, you know, like it's very beautiful. You're on this like remote beach and then you're looking down and you're finding microplastics, microplastics. I think it's very hard because then we really understand that, you know, this pollution is everywhere. Uh, we are only seeing this what's on the surface on land, but there's like millions of particles that are entering the marine environment every year. So, you know, it's also is also where we cannot see. So in, 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 in the sea, uh, within the marine, uh, marine organism. And for me, it's very, very painful to, to realize that. And that's why I still want to work on, on the project, you know, to, to, to make a change in some way, to, to, to raise awareness and, and, and make a change about uh, this pollution. Also, another thing that pay me quite a lot, and I wanted to, to say it is that, with the pandemic, we used, you know, those those face masks that are made of plastics, obviously. And well, we we know that there are some studies that already, you know, been published about the impact of those masks on the environment that we can find them everywhere. So we are not very learning from what we what we know already. We we are still continuing polluting the environment. So it's important to to continue to, to work on this project, to work on this, sorry, uh, pollution and raise awareness. And I think there's a lot of scientific communication to do uh, and education to do about uh, plastics pollution. Well, I've no doubt that you'll have a positive contribution in the future for sure. Now, here we have the last question, which is the 10 million euro question, which is if you were given 10 million euros to continue your work on microplastics, what would you do and what would you prioritize? Well, if I'm staying um, on, on this kind of project, so just looking at the coastal areas, I think I would prioritize the study of environmental parameter. Like I said before, I would look at the wind speed, the wind direction, the wave trends, the wave heights, you know, those kind of parameters, the tides, to try to really understand the behavior and transport of microplastics along the coastal areas because we know it's everywhere, but we don't understand yet how, how they are being transported, you know, and what are they dynamic? You could have like, you know, big dynamic with microplastic moving between, you know, sediments, seawater and biota, but you have also local, local dynamic, for example, with, with the tide. So I think it's important to investigate that. And for that, I would definitely, um, choose some specific site and you know um, and sample at different time and special scale to investigate this issue and then i would also implement and investigate how benthic organisms are affecting the sedimentation process of microplastics uh, and for that i would develop a method you know to record microplastic microplastics at the surface water for example along the coast for that i could use you know wild mussel but also cage mussel 
that you know I could make sure, for example, that there were no microplastic within those muscles and that they are healthy individual. So then you could place them at different you know depth, and you could be able maybe to record and have an idea how you know microplastic are sinking, for example, or you know what are the quantity at different depth, and also maybe collecting organisms such as worms or bivalves, like you know dwelling dwelling organism or using muscle beds, you know, to study, to study those organisms to try to understand the fluxes, you know, like how they are actually influencing the fluxes of microplastics from the seawater to the seafloor. And of course, then after that, you could use biological modeling and physical modeling to uh, implement the data from, from the marine environment, uh, implement them into some model to understand where they were coming from using, you know, particle tracking, for example, model. Well, it sounds like there's no shortage of work that needs to be done. And of course, hopefully the, the money and the research funding goes towards these important issues. Lola, it's been great having your insight and to hear about your work today and an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. It just remains for me to say merci beaucoup. And thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I was very glad to, to be here and I hope uh, that um, people will find it uh, interesting. Under the Surface is part of the Popcorn Project. Popcorn is funded by the Northern Periphery and Arctic Programme, part of the European Union's Interreg Programme.